Hey, Lakeview Assembly, so glad that you're here with us this morning, and we just, we just want to honor and thank you for, for tracking with us during these times and really just being faithful to the live stream and the sharing and the liking of those things. As We are in unprecedented times, and we're not sure what it's going to look like when we come back. Uh, things might never be the same, but that doesn't mean they can't be better, and that doesn't mean that God isn't going to do something supernatural among us. And so we're really, as a staff, really trying to get an ear to hear the, the, the word of the Lord and get instruction going forward. And so thank you so much for, for helping us and staying plugged in and your faithfulness and, and giving and just all of the above. And so I just want to brag on you and just honor you. Uh, before I get into the word, I'm going to pray. And so if you could pray with me uh, that God would get glory and that his word would go out clearly, uh, plainly, and succinctly. Lord, we just thank you, God for your glory. We thank you, God, for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your Son, who's Jesus, the most beautiful entity in the universe, God. And so, Lord, help us to have softened hearts and open ears to hear your word, God. Let us be a people of the Spirit that discern the times that we are in. So, God, we might move and make our decisions toward things that honor you and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The times that we are in are unprecedented. It doesn't matter if I talk to somebody 90 years old or 20 years old. Everybody I talk to says the same thing. I've never experienced a moment in history like this. It's kind of like if you've ever been in a position where uh, nobody had a watch and maybe uh, not a, in this age, everybody uses a cell phone to tell time, but, but have you ever been in a situation where nobody knew the time, right? Like you, had, you needed to be somewhere at a certain time because you couldn't miss an appointment or something important, but nobody had a wristwatch, nobody had a cell phone, nobody had, and so you were just at the mercy of not knowing what time it was. And that's how this season is. These unprecedented times, we've got to know what time it is biblically. We've got to know what time it is and, and what season that we are in in order to respond appropriately. Because how many of you know there's some seasons that require a different kind of obedience than other seasons. And this is precisely the season that we're in. There is no one broad swath answer for the people of God or for you in this time. In this time, we're going to have to be a people that understand what time it is, not just for our church or for the people of God, but to also understand what time it is for each of us individually. This is going to require an uncluttering of our lives and an open ear and obedience to the Lord being willing and open to deal with each and every area that is being set before us. See, we've got to know what time it is by the Spirit of God, not just in human history, but in the salvation history of God and God's great plan of what He wants to do in the earth. Uh, so a proper understanding of where we are in the grand sweep of history must be determined based upon the Spirit of God and the Scripture. So some Christians are called to live within a framework of a biblical worldview. 
Um, now, when we are in this framework of a biblical worldview, we are more prepared to make the right decisions in history as human history collides with God's grand story of redemption and His coming, that when we are walking in that light, we have a greater revelation of what we should do in each and every moment. And this is what we must do as Christian leaders in this day. We must influence others within not just the human history, not just the natural history, but the history that God has laid out for us through the Scriptures. And that is the reality that we're calling to people. And I want to submit to you that that's not just for some Christians, even though only some Christians do it. That is for every believer to tap into the supernatural wisdom of God, the supernatural plan of God where we wouldn't get caught up in this story, but we would get caught up in His story or His history, what God is wanting to do on the earth. So there's a group of people in the Scriptures, and you might have heard this before, but it's this group called the Men of Issachar or the Sons of Issachar. And the Bible tells us that they understood the times. In other words, that their unique moment in history required a unique wisdom that wasn't required in the generation previous to them. Uh, they're mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Um, it's this brief snippet where it's listing these different things and in passing, then all of a sudden it stops with these men of Issachar and says, they understood the time they were in. Right? It's like Bible interpreters, uh, we shouldn't, as Bible interpreters, we shouldn't read too much into this brief, uh, seemingly unrelated remarks, but, but still we should be stopped in our tracks and, and get to the bottom of what did it mean that these men understood the times. It's just intriguing and just the Lord just kept taking me to that this week. And so what were the times that they understood? What time were they in that required a supernatural wisdom to go forward and make God-honoring decisions and, and, to, and to navigate the uncertain future in which they were in? Here's the context of them understanding the times. The context was this, that Saul was king, but David had already been anointed as the future king. Come on, somebody. They were between the times of one rule coming to an end and another rule about to come to pass that was actually God's idea and God's honoring choice. So here they are in between the times and they understand that though this one is in power, that there's a greater king coming and it's to him that I should live and, and cast our lot and to give our allegiance to while still being in the realm between the times of two separate reigns. See, that's where we are at in history. We have world leaders and human government over us and we are to respect them and to do the right thing. But we can't get lost in that story and miss out on the fact that we have a king that is coming. We have 
have a king that is greater than any world leader named Jesus. And we are between the times. And if we're going to be a people to understand the times, we've got to put our allegiance with Jesus. We've got to put our allegiance in the king that is coming, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so they were, in a sense, these sons of Issachar, in a position between the time of two different rules. The rightful king had been anointed, but not visibly enthroned. See, see, it's not difficult to discern the parallel in the New Testament, right? There's this idea in the New Testament of the already, but not yet. In other words, King Jesus has been enthroned upon humanity as the king when he was on the cross and his kingdom was inaugurated when he ascended into heaven and rose from the dead and and sent his spirit to the church to be the heralds to say the king is coming and the king has come. And so we live in this position of where we're living between the times. We are going to need supernatural wisdom to, de- to figure out how to navigate these unprecedented times in history. We are in the already. Is Jesus already king? Jesus is already God. But His visible enthronement has not yet happened. And so that will take a supernatural wisdom and a supernatural people to understand this reality. And to walk this thing out. Jesus has already been marked out as the Messiah of Israel and the true Lord of the world. And yet, His reign is not at this time public and visible for all to see. So note the connection here in 1 Chronicles 12.32. It says that they understood the times so they knew what Israel should do. They understood the, the, the volatile nature of the times they were in, of one thing coming to pass and a new thing uh, beginning to be established. But because they understood the transition, they understood what to do in the moment. In other words, a proper understanding of the time in which they lived was essential for the men of Issachar to obtain the wisdom needed to know what Israel should do. Their leadership was contextual. In other words, they couldn't take leadership paradigms from the past. They were in a time that was unprecedented that they'd never experienced before, so they had to be open to the wisdom that God was giving right now. They had to be a people that were so discerning that in the moment of the now, they could make a decision based upon the future to where things were going. See, God not only gave them the Torah to obey, Moses' law and the five books, first five books of the Bible, but He expected them to properly apply God's Word to the context in which they were in uniquely, right? that there's sometimes the Bible makes demands of us in different ways. And these aren't, uh, these aren't uh, 
contra uh, contrary, conflicting things. But in some seasons, the Bible is asking us to do one thing, when in another season, the Bible requires us to do something else. This is called a paradox. The reason why it's not contradictory is the fact that in one time this is required and another time this is required, but both are not required at the same time. So thus, it's not a conflicting or contrary statement. So what God is asking us to do in one season might not be what He asks us to do in another so they had to properly apply the principles that they had and there wasn't a just broad stroke, obedient thing that they could do. They had to be open to what God was saying in the now and in the season and context in which they were in. See, they understood and plotted their reality based upon the timeline of biblical history. Therefore, because they understood the timeline of God, they could make decisions as leaders to let other people know what the right course of action was. This wisdom comes based upon who is in charge. See, when we think about who's really in charge, at the end of the day, it's God, right? God is the one you're going to have to stand before and give an account. It's going to be God that has the final say-so in your life. When you live under the light of that reality, suddenly you can make decisions even in every little area of your life based upon what is pleasing to Him and not what is pleasing to them. See, see who we have emplaced on a throne in our life will be the very one that we serve and whom we are obedient to. See, when we don't fully know or trust who is really in charge, we will be obedient to a lesser master because we will think they know better than God Himself. Uh, you've heard the old saying that the devil is in the details. But I want to tell you that I believe God is in the details of your life. And as we are living between the times, it's hard because sometimes we're fooled into thinking that our little decisions that we make don't matter in the grand scheme of things. See, I think this is Satan's, one of his greatest ploys is to come into our life and say, obedience in the small things doesn't matter. Just live your life however you want and just make sure you, you, you check the big boxes. And then when we do that, we live lives that are lesser than, that are cluttered with things that keep us from hearing the voice of God in the unique season that we're in. And so we leave confused. We don't know what decision to make. We don't know where to move or where to go. And it's because we've allowed obedient masters of lesser power to govern us and we have fooled ourselves into thinking that that is the right thing to do. That real power belongs to this entity or this group, not in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, see, sometimes we're fooled into thinking our little decisions don't matter. The choices about things that 
no one can really see us do. Uh, that, that doesn't matter. You know, the little things, the little areas of obedience, the things that we're, quote unquote, getting away with, uh, that's really just revealing that we really don't believe King Jesus sees or that King Jesus is in charge of our life. See, if I'm looking at Jesus in the light of who He is as the King of the universe, the one in whom I'm going to stand before, suddenly there's no little decisions. There's no small moments. Every single thing in my life, not in some burdensome way or some law-keeping, regulatory way, but out of a heart that is grateful, grateful that's been touched by the grace of God, I suddenly, everything comes into, on the table that says, God, every, every area of my life is yours, that I'm stewarding the good gifts that you have given me. And now, God, tell me which step to make in these times that I might give you glory and give you honor. See, the choices about the things no one can see or do, see us do, really matter to God. That they are details that move the heart of God. And right now, everybody's caught up in, I can't do big things. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't go here. I can't go there. And what they're missing is that this has been an opportunity to deal with the little areas of our life that we've yet to deal and give to God. And it's proof that we don't think the little obedience to God is as big as the big obedience to God. So this season is a time to understand the times that we're in and to put our life under a microscope and say, God, is there any area that I've termed too little to be obedient in? And can you evaluate it and speak to my heart so that I can hear your voice and know the times in which I'm in? See, I submit to you today that the little decisions you make are just as important as what we consider the big decisions or the big moments of our life. I love this quote by P.J. O'Rourke, and it says, Everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to help mom do the dishes. See, we're caught up in the big thing of what we think is impressive to God. And what I've found out is that it's in the secret place, it's in the small places of obedience that those little places become cumulative and that becomes into something supernatural that actually magnifies God and becomes something bigger than what we thought. See, the, the culmination of my life are the little areas in the secret place where I have been obedient and that is what God honors when it comes out publicly. That if I'm not willing to be obedient in the small stuff. The Bible says it this way. He that I can trust with little, I can trust with much. In other words, if God can't trust you with the thing you got now, quit asking Him for more and just be obedient unto the revelation that He's giving you at this moment. I love this thought. It's sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. In other words, the totality of our life comes down to what has entered our brain and that which we have entertained there. 
In other words, what our life looks like is really something that starts out small and begins to snowball into something else. Whether it's for the glory of God, that would start in a small place of obedience, which would set off a chain reaction of beautiful things that would result in a man of character and and a, and a woman of character filled with the power of God. Or it starts with something negative that starts small as a thought, but then that thought sets a chain reaction that would go into something incredibly evil. Me and a couple guys were, were sitting at Sonic the other day and having some ice cream, and, and we were talking about Proverbs 22.1 that says, a good name is to be chosen rather than riches. And one of them looked at me and said, what do you think that this means? I, I said, I think it means this. When I say Hitler, what comes to your mind? What's the feeling you get without even words? And they were just like, oh. And so I said, what comes to your mind when I say Billy Graham? What comes to your mind when I say Martin Luther King Jr.? Right? You're flooded with emotions based upon the character of the life that was lived out in front of you based upon the impact of the places of obedience. That a good name is beginning to be developed not in the big gigantic things that you did, but based upon the small recesses of your life that you chose to be obedient in. And then those little things snowballed into something great and grand and big. See, we we are the sum of our choices, but it's not too late to redeem the time. See, when Jesus Christ died for sins, He died for past, present, and future sins so that right now you could meet Him and your past could be forgiven, your now could be in relationship with Him, and you could walk in fellowship and have each and every uh, future sin forgiven as you walked in relationship with Him. See, it's not too late to redeem the time. But it might not be as big of a change as you think you need to make. It might be as small as dealing with that place in your life that you've been unwilling to deal with. That life can go on and you can function without dealing with it, but that doesn't mean God doesn't want to touch you and you to be obedient in every area of your life. See, we would like a big event many times or a miraculous intervention, right? It's like we would like, you know, just to have this powerful spiritual experience to where, you know, God zaps us and then it's gone. And there's moments that God does that. And I thank God for the power of God. I thank God for His Spirit coming in. I thank, I thank God for the suddenlies of God where he, he moves on us in a way that just overwhelms us. But most times in my life when things begin to get unraveled and get to the heart of things, it's really a lot of little steps of obedience that seem insignificant that lead me to a place of supernatural healing. See, see, we would like a lot of times for God just to take things, but really in reality, uh, the totality of our life are just a bunch of small God-honoring decisions that lead us to the place that we're at now. And people look at the place that we're at now and say, wow, this is awesome, but they don't see the toilets that were cleaned. They don't see the time 
times when I've wronged somebody and I had to go to them and say, would you please forgive me and humble myself? They don't see the times of, of, of the hard work and of the prayer time and on my face and the dealings with God that I've had in the private place. They're not going to see those things. But that is the precise place where God would meet us in order that we would have a life that would be an open channel of His power and of His Spirit and that we would not just radiate the power of God, but that we would be a people that would imitate and radiate the character and integrity of God. See, many times people want a quick fix. Well, I need my, I need my bill paid. Well, maybe what you really need is to sit down with somebody that has wisdom and finances and to say, how much money's coming in? How much money's going out? And let's create a budget where you don't keep entering into this problem. See, the problem is not the bill. The problem is the character or the way in which we have organized and created characters and created uh, habits that are now dominating our life. I have people come to me all the time. Hey, man, I need $100. Like, no, you don't. That will just prolong the inevitable. You need to change the trajectory of your life. Instead of asking people to fix the immediate dilemma, you're going to have to let somebody in that you can trust on the inside of your lifestyle and get to who is the real culprit of my problems. See, a small issue neglected becomes a big problem down the road. See, you can avoid a battle, but you'll lose the war. I want to say that again. You can avoid the battle, but you're going to lose the war. Because a war is the totality of small battles won over time. See, the Bible says this, something funny to me, and I never really thought about it, and I say it, and I kind of get the meaning, and I think we all kind of throw it around. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine, right? Uh, in our context, I'm like, what does that even mean? What does a fox have to do with anything? Uh, and what is up with a vineyard, right? Foxes aren't even... Uh, aren't even vegetarian, right? They're looking for bugs and animals and different things. There's times that they eat, uh, that they eat uh, herbs or, or whatever, but, but, but it's kind of rare, right? Like a fox. So what is a big deal? A fox is in the vineyard. What does that even mean? And so it really got me thinking about this statement. And so anytime I get faced with a question I don't know, it leads me into discovery mode, which generally leads me to what I'm talking to you about now. Now the Bible says some interesting things about foxes. Uh, Solomon's readers and their context of history uh, would have seen the foxes to be destructive animals that could destroy valuable Vineyards. It's mentioned in Judges chapter 15 where Samson ties the tail of 300 foxes together and sets those suckers on fire and sends them out and it burns up fields. Uh, Psalm 63 verse 10 talks about foxes. Ezekiel 13 4. Uh, now in the text that we're going to be looking at where it says the, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine, we're going to be looking at Song of Songs 2 verse 2 verse 14 and 15. Chapter 2, rather, verse 14 and 15. 
so, so here's kind of what's going on. So this Shulamite bride, which is like a picture of the church, and then there is this love for King Solomon, which is kind of a picture of Jesus, like we're the bride and he's the bridegroom. And so it's like this love song that overlays into the reality of our relationship with Jesus as the church collectively. Uh, and he talks about, she, she's expressing this need for King Solomon to come to catch the foxes that spoil the vines. And so picture this, it's, it's a blossoming vineyard that is a beautiful place, that is the meeting place for the Shulamite bride and for King Solomon. It's this place to where relationship takes place. It's, it's this growing romance between a couple. And the foxes represent the potential problems that could damage their relationship prior to the marriage which takes place in chapter 5. See, the bride-to-be is saying, in essence, let's take preventative measures to protect our love from anything that could harm it. See, in ancient literature, wild animals were many times a, a metaphor to represent problems that could separate lovers. Uh, for example, Egyptian songs used crocodiles because they would have been by the Nile River, which would have been infested with those. And I would have seen that as a metaphor of danger, of, of you're drawing to get water, a life source, but then here's a crocodile, right? Like different places in, in ancient literature would use these things that they saw as threats. Uh, now in Israel, there's not a crocodile problem, right? Uh, but foxes were apparently a problem, that these foxes were these Entities that had come in and would destroy the meeting place for the king and his future bride that had not been married yet. See, in the Old Testament, we talked about Samson using these foxes. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, here's one I hadn't thought about. Tobiah mocks the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall. And what does he say? That thing will fall if even a fox gets on it. Right? Like, like something small can bring this to a, a failure, bring it to a place of breaking down a wall of even stones. In the New Testament, Jesus uses the word fox and he calls Herod. A fox, And he says this, go tell that fox, talking of Herod, I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. That's Luke 13, 32. So, so a fox is representative of this uh, uh, crafty and worthless nature. Something that is trying to hinder the work of God. So let's look at this text where it talks about the little foxes. Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, says this. O oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. In other words, it's an unprecedented time. It's a time where the vineyard is the place where we can be meeting. But if there's not some preemptive work to catch and run out these foxes, our meeting will be hindered. 
See, there's a couple things going on here where in the first verse there in verse 14, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock and in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. So, so on one level, this story is encouraging the married couple to prioritize a time of a romantic retreat where they can rediscover each other. I want to tell you, this has been a trying time. There's no uh, secret that the uh, calls for domestic abuse have gone up during this time because with more frequency and pressure tend to bring us to a place. So when this thing begins to lift, or maybe there's ways you can get creative and do it now, every one of us need to figure out how to ship those little foxes to Camp Grandma's house, right? And enjoy our wives and rediscover the love that we have for each other. If it's not little foxes that are children, maybe it's other things. And there's ways you can move those out where you can reconnect and rekindle. So on one level, this this is what is being talked about. On another level, this story is a reminder of the need to be on constant watch against the sins of the flesh, which unrestrained would invade and disrupt our personal enjoyment of the Lord. See, these little foxes that spoil our spiritual vineyard are just that, very little these are the little sins. These are the harmless habits that, that are even legal sometimes or, or, or that seem to be not as taboo as maybe the 1950s or whatever it might be. But, but they keep us from prayer. They deplete our passion for worship. We're not going to church like we were. We're not watching the stream like we were. We're not praying like we were. We're not in the Word like we were. We're not doing any of the things that we used to do that got us to where we're at. And we begin to start harmful habits, begin to creep in based upon we've allowed little Little foxes to come in that some people can't even see or would not even call us out on because they're that invisible. See, the Christian must protect his relationship with God by seeking out and hunting these little foxes. Notice the paradigm of relationship here. That these foxes affect the intimacy between the king and the bride, Jesus and the church. See, Paul uses this analogy, and he brings us even more home. He calls the church, he compares the church to a bride when a marriage is going on, and he compares Jesus to the husband of the bride, that Paul uses this intimate example. So this is not a stretch. This is relationship terms that, that even Paul, the apostle, uses. These things that are not taboo, and maybe even some of them which are natural, but yet they're not God-honoring. God would have us to examine those. They would be even things that wouldn't turn heads in most contexts, that people would look over. But maybe God is calling us to a place to where we would remove the distractions. And something that I noticed that I come to is that foxes don't even eat grapes. And they're really small. Like, a fox is hard to see. Like, it's not like a dog or a cat or a squirrel. Like, right? Like, a fox knows when to come out and when to hide. Right? So this would, like, indicate this hidden nature of something that can get so low, it's under the vineyard, the canopy of the vineyard, and it can begin to sneak its way around and go unbeknownst. In other words, the only way you can catch them is to hunt them. They're not going to appear naturally. You're going to have to actually look for them and go after them. The vineyard foxes are below the blooms. They're hidden in the rows underneath. So it can look fruitful, but all of a sudden there's these foxes going around 
unbeknownst to us. Hidden things. But you know what it is about a fox in a vineyard? A fox doesn't belong in a vineyard. A farmer belongs in a vineyard. A marriage belongs in a vineyard. Someone who is harvesting belongs in a vineyard. So it's not that the fox causes so much problems, it's that it doesn't belong there. It doesn't need to be there. See, our destiny is the sum of our choices. And your choices really matter. And the level that you allow God to deal with you will be the level that He's able to trust you with more. And just because you're getting away with something doesn't make it right. So if your business isn't on the up and up, man, you get it on the up and up. If you're hiding things in your marriage, man, you need to cut that out and you need to focus on your bride and to really press in and love and study her the way you used to when you were dating. If God is speaking to you about an area of your life that you're hiding, here's the deal. The number one thing to know that something you're doing is not right is if you're hiding it and you can't share it with other people. Okay, If you don't have that, the Bible says that anything not done in faith is sin. In other words, something I'm not confident enough to let everybody see would determine the fact that I don't have enough faith to believe that God is forgiving it and thus it is wrong for my life and for my context. In other words, what's wrong for somebody else might be really wrong for me based upon my position and different things of that nature, based on where the Spirit of God has taken me, based upon where I live in my context. So you have to be in a place that just because you've justified it biblically, Paul says it this way, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Some things are harmful for me. I'm talking about the King of kings and the Lord of lords that you're going to stand before. So you need to strive and live under that revelation of who's really in charge because you're between the times. You've got to live under the revelation of who's really in charge. And you've got to live in a way to strive to say, well, that Jesus would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, I believe God's dealing with me. and He says, we must be a people of integrity. And that's what God's been speaking to me. Being a people that are willing to deal with the seemingly most trivial places of our life. I begin to talk about this with a couple of my close friends, and we begin to say, what are some things that are, that are robbing us of our integrity, the things that, that nobody else sees but that we see? And there were some debts that one of them owed, and, and there were some fines that another one, and these are dear brothers to me. And, and, they, and, and I, as we were talking about, what are some things that we can do to, to really embrace the character and integrity of God and honor these in which we are in debt to or whatever it might be. And I get a call back and, and one gets their stimulus check and they pay all their fines. Another one had some back rent due and went and sought the person out that wasn't even asking for it. And he gives the rent back. See, see, these are decisions that we make that are holy. See, Jesus said this. He said, he said that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. What does that mean? Because the Pharisees were rule keepers from the word go. The Pharisaical rule keepers were just keeping the law up until the, the command itself. For your holiness to exceed that of the Pharisees, it's got to be something that comes from the heart that you do on your own free will, not based upon a command 
or based upon uh, obedience up until a certain point. To exceed the obedience of the Pharisees would be something that you made a decision based upon your own free will. A choice that you could have not made. That nobody was going to call you out on. That you could have went to your grave without making the decision to make it right. But you, based upon your relationship with God, said, I'm going to step into the character of Jesus and I'm going to emulate Him above all because that is the one I'm going to answer to. So I'm even going to repay back those things that are not asked of me because it is right. See, Jesus said what you do in the secret place will be your public reward. I want to close with this scripture and then a statement by Charles Spurgeon. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Now, I remind you, this is after the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, right? So we've heard about all these awesome exploits of just normal people that were empowered by the Spirit of God. He says they were living these acceptable lives that we could live too. So it's pulling us into that. Since you were surrounded by so many people that's done it before you, guess what? You can do it too. Therefore, since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, this thing is, a, is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And if you'll look at those marathon runners, man, they got hardly anything on. They got a light little jersey. They got a paper number stapled to them. They've got some shorts on that are so short, like uh, it's almost scandalous. They've got the lightest shoes that they could possibly wear. Uh, everything they have is about shedding off anything that would hinder them and weigh them down based upon a 26-mile race that they're about to run. So maybe it's not sin, maybe it is, but maybe there's just weights. Maybe there's things that you took with you that God is saying, I need you to let that go because we've got a long race ahead of us. I want to close with this. This is an excerpt from... Charles Spurgeon's uh, daily readings, his devotional called Morning and Evening, and I want to share it with you. It's addressing this scripture in Song of Songs too. And it says, Ask then the question, what has driven Christ from you? He hides his face behind the wall of your sins. And that wall may be built up of little pebbles as easily as of great stones. The sea is made up of small drops and rocks are made up of very small grains. The sea which divides you from Christ may be filled with the drops of your little sins. And the rock which has well nigh wrecked your ship may have been the daily working of coral creatures that built a reef over a long period of time. If you would live with Christ and walk with Christ and see Christ and have fellowship with Christ, take heed of the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. And Jesus invites you to go with Him and take Him with you. And He will surely, like Samson, take the foxes at once and easily destroy them. Go with Him to the hunting. So with Charles Spurgeon, I want to say with him to you. Would you go with him to the hunting? 
of the little foxes that are spoiling the intimacy that you could be having with Jesus that will hinder you in the days to come in the wisdom and discernment and connection you're going to have to have with God for the next season that we are entering into. Let's pray. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, God. I pray that they would be cut to the heart. God, not as a violent warrior, but God, but as a surgeon making an incision. A surgeon with healing and benefit in their minds, not destruction. God, I pray that they would deal with themselves in the secret areas of their life. So God, they could experience the pleasure and the joy and the good things of God that you have for them. God, we humble ourselves in these humbling times and say, God, like the men of Issachar, we want to understand these times and make the right decisions that are, we are being faced with. And God, we give you all the glory and all the praise. We thank you for the victory that's already ours. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Love you guys. Thank you so much for tracking with us. May you be blessed and God just supernaturally bless you in every area of your life. And we thank you for joining. God bless. So let the redeemer.